It's truly a blessing and an honor to be able to assemble on the first day of the week, isn't it? To appreciate the sweetness of Christianity, to understand the great reward and blessing that comes with it, and the fact that in so doing we are honoring and worshiping the Almighty God of Heaven. As you come to the part of our worship today in which we'll consider a portion of the Word of God, these introductory thoughts, these comments, if you please, I hope will motivate us, lead us into a consideration of the topic that I would invite us to consider this Sunday morning. In the honor of Christianity, an amazing thing. There are cultures and various observations and places around the world, and yet nothing compares to the absolute honor that comes with being a Christian. In Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, we're told, "...in honor preferring one another." And certainly love must be without dissimulation. Our love that we express in the Christian family is to be without hypocrisy. It's to be a genuine thing. And as we prefer that fellowship and the appreciation that goes with it, that really will motivate us in light of our study over the next few moments this morning. As you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the Word of God so often both in the Old and New Testament brings to us to consider that our God, though a God of love that He is, His judgment is so very severe and so very direct according to His law. Today, why don't you and I think then about that and application of it in your life and mine? In so doing, what about a punishment inflicted by many? That's the title you probably noticed that I gave to the lesson, a punishment inflicted by many. That's the very wording of 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6, our lesson text this morning. This next slide will move us, point us in that direction of consideration. Let's develop it like this. The Word of God sets before us that there are certain things that are wrong. Although men may not think so, certain things are just simply wrong. And it's because God says that it is. Men may often conclude differently and rationalize. But God says that certain things are not only inappropriate, they are absolutely wrong. Any transgression of God's law is called sin. 1 John 3, 4 reminds us rather immediately, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. The whole idea then of violating God's law is a matter to be appreciated by definition of what He calls sin. And of course, the seriousness of that leads us to note this. This sin is something all of us are guilty of. Romans 3 verse 10 says, There's none righteous, no, not one. Thirteen verses later, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and therefore none of us can claim that by myself I'm able to live a life every day in which I am not guilty, that I never do anything amiss in the sight of God. But in that very point, aren't you and I as Christians so thankful about this? The God of heaven has reached down His mighty and loving hand and said, I will offer forgiveness of that sin. I will make available to you a means whereby all the guilt attached to that sin can be removed. And you'll never, ever have to answer for it. Now, when you and I think about law and the way that works, an individual violates the laws of the state of Tennessee, or perhaps violates the laws of the United States of America, and is thus hauled before some official and decreed guilty of something. 
there's payment then to be made. Maybe it's jail time. Maybe it is some other kind of remuneration. Perhaps it's all of the above. And if the crime is serious enough, it may be my life I have to give. But the point is, here we have each violated the law of God, and yet He has offered to us forgiveness. And that word forgive literally means, of course, to completely remove or wipe away those features and matters. You'll notice in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, as Paul preached that remarkable lesson there on the first missionary journey, he commented and he says, under the law of Moses, you couldn't be forgiven, but now through the blood of Christ you can. And forgiveness, you see, is available through the one and only avenue, the means of the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. You'll notice in Ephesians 1 verse 7, near the outset of that book, Paul highlighted in a great manner that that forgiveness made available through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other means. All of that leads us then to note the following. Once we've been forgiven, and in the light of the greatness of God's provision, of course, we look forward to walking in the blessed light of God. For if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sins. That verse, 1 John 1 verse 7, highlights the fellowship that a Christian family enjoys but of course, along that same line, the remarkable fellowship of unity and of joyous association with God. One last verse along that line, of course, would be Romans 8.1. Let me preface that verse by looking at two verses before it in Romans 7.24. There Paul rather loudly and noticeably said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I'm guilty of sin. I do that which I ought not, and I leave undone what I should. And in so doing, that sinfulness, of course, separates me from God. No wonder Paul exclaimed, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And two verses later he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And therefore those who walk after the teachings of the Spirit and those who walk in the marvelous light of the Son of God, they enjoy the ongoing forgiveness of their sins. When I fail, when I mess up, when I sin, as long as I'm walking in the light, God will forgive me of those sins by virtue of my attachment to Him through the blessed Son, Jesus Christ. No wonder then the sweetness of all of that helps us see that without that forgiveness... None of us could be saved. Without the opportunity, since we're all sinners, without that forgiveness, none of us would be able to be right before God. Isn't it then a tragedy and a sadness to comment about the last things on that slide? What is to be, then be done when a Christian, when an individual, who once has known that light of the gospel of God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when that individual becomes habitually that which lives in a sin and is unwilling to repent. Well, the thing that the Word of God teaches us is the very title of our lesson today, Punishment Inflicted by Many. If you look at 2 Corinthians 2, read with me again verses 6 and 7. 
Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. The preface to that in verse number 6 was a reference to a punishment inflicted by many. A punishment that involved the activities, the choices, the decisions of very many people. Let's develop that more thoroughly in our time of study this morning. For as you do that with me, you'll notice that it is a magnificent statement of love, not only on the part of God, but on the part of those associates of this one who's living in sin. That brings us to this next slide. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? In that chapter, you'll notice a development and a rather extensive one with emphasis on the very topic of our discussion this morning. 1 Corinthians 5 begins like this. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Revisit in the scene of your mind the congregation in Corinth a little less than 20 centuries ago. Here was a group of people. They had come to know about Jesus Christ. They had appreciated the features and attributes of service to the God of heaven. They knew through the preaching of the Apostle Paul and otherwise the thoroughness and the rightness of what was involved in living for the God of heaven. But you'll notice in verse number 1, it came to be the following circumstance developed. There is fornication among you. There was a gentleman in the church at Corinth, a man, if you please, who had begun to have a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, please notice the wording of it. It does not say she was his mother. I mean, that would be incestuous, and that seems not at all to be the study. Rather, his mother, perhaps she had died. Perhaps she was divorced from the man's father. We don't know about that, but the fact is... The gentleman's father had married another woman. Verse number 1 says, notice she's called his wife. And yet the time came to be that this son was with her. Now Paul was very aware, aware of the circumstance. He says it is reported commonly. This was something that not only the church knew about, it was something the community knew about. It was something that was a very open matter. You'll notice furthermore, as you can see on the slide, inasmuch as this gentleman was again living with her, a number of interesting points are to be noted. First of all, she is not mentioned anymore in this chapter. That would indicate she was not a member of the church, but the man was. Furthermore, we notice that not only is that the case, in light of the other comments made, apparently, since she wasn't a member of the church, she was a, a heathen woman. As verse number 1 closes, this kind of fornication, not so much as even named among the Gentiles. It was understood that this was not just inappropriate, it was wrong. And now you might notice the following comment with me. Verse number 2 says, And ye are puffed up. And have not done rather, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. There is something very keen and special about the fellowship of the church. It must be safeguarded exceedingly closely. 
as we'll study this morning. That fellowship, that blessed beauty, that unison, if you please, is to be such that here it says this gentleman should be taken away from you. It would appear he was desirous of continuing that fellowship, that association, if you please, with the church. And Paul said this cannot be. He's living in sin. He's living in fornication. Not only that, you'll note this comment. Notice verses 12 and 13 of this same chapter. There the verses read, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. God gave commandment, put that man away from you. And with that in mind, notice where else it directly leads us, namely the next comment. The church, you see, had acted in a way that was not right. Here was a man, and his soul was not just in jeopardy, he was lost. He was headed straight for hell. And the church was not acting toward him in love the way that they should. That man was headed to eternal ruin because of what he was doing. And they were painting a picture as if it wasn't so bad. They were not acting in the way that they should. Note the wording of verse 2. Ye are puffed up. That's the New Testament prescription for describing an attitude of arrogance, an attitude of self-knowledge and self-consideration. Isn't it true that I'm sure there are many of our current day today who would perhaps find it within themselves to be puffed up along this line? You and I can imagine easily how it works. Here's a person, and we know that that person is not living correctly. That's his business. I don't want to get involved, so I'm just going to kind of pretend there's nothing wrong with it. Paul said you can't do that as the church. You're puffed up, and he said that isn't right. Notice what should have occurred. Verse 6, your glorying is not good. Here was a congregation of the Lord's people. Their glorying wasn't good. Their puffed up character was not going to help the salvation of this unfortunate gentleman who was living in sin. It is with that in mind, I would point out to you what the Lord Jesus Christ then directed them. Verse number 5 says, Deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Isn't it true? that the statement therein made was one of withdrawal. Deliver that one to Satan. I'd like you to appreciate with me for a moment the extent to which the loving God of heaven will go in the hope of reaching the sensibilities of a person living in sin. Here was a man who himself had made this particular set of choices. And by the way, isn't it interesting, we aren't given all the background. As I said earlier, maybe his actual mother had died. Maybe his father had married a much younger woman. We don't know. It could be that this woman who was actually his stepmother was far closer to his age than perhaps to his father's age. Not only that, maybe the gentleman would say, My dad has mistreated her, and I love her. She's pretty. I've just come to associate with her in the sense that I've come to appreciate she's a genuinely good woman and I love her. I didn't make any difference. It was sin. Paul said, deliver such an one to Satan. 
Would you highlight the following thought with me? Notice the man was already lost. This affirmation was not making him in a transition from being saved to being lost. He was already lost because he wouldn't repent of the sin. He was lost because he wouldn't turn from the sin in which he was engaged. He was lost because he wouldn't again accept the offer of forgiveness from God. He knew what the terms of the forgiveness were, but he would not succumb or at least would not follow it. Not only that, Isn't it amazing how differently again the world might look upon it? That phrase puffed up, it seems to me, is so very keen. There are many instances in our modern world, as I mentioned a moment ago, when appeal is made to either the love or the grace of God, one or the other. And perhaps it's along a line of thinking like this. Well, perhaps that man is or that woman is living in error and in sin, but I'm going to depend on the grace of God and let Him take care of it. They didn't write either. Paul said, here's what you as the church must do. Here's what you have to do. Deliver such an one to Satan. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, there are two reasons given in this chapter for that withdrawal. The withdrawal of fellowship from this one who is impenitent. First of all, verse 5, deliver such an one to Satan. Why? for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. May each of us be impressed with this fact. Withdrawal is the last step that the church has been given to reach an impenitent Christian, to reach someone who has begun to live in a life of sin and to this point has been unwilling to turn from it. This is the last step. Beyond that, the church has nothing else it can do. You withdraw fellowship from this one in the hopes that he or she will recognize the the degree to which they've come, what they've lost, and the fact that they are headed for a devil's hell. But that isn't the only reason. Again, the hope is the person might come to his or her senses and recognize what has been forfeited and realize what the Lord Jesus has done and make a proper turning in life. That's the hope. That's the goal. Reason number two, verse number seven. Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. Isn't it true that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Here is the body of Christ. And if this sin is tolerated, although some would say, oh, we'll never behave like that, and we'll never in fact give in to a consideration even close to that. Notice what the seeds of disobedience they'll bring forth. Notice what the seeds of rebellion bring forth. Well, look at what he did. I know I'm not doing that, but he rebelled against God and the church didn't do anything. So I don't see any reason why I can't do this or that or something else. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It will permeate and pervade in light of the kind of disobedience and the attitude, among other things, that it, that it engenders. Paul says that can't be tolerated. For those reasons, you'll notice we close that slide and notice this is a tremendous statement of protection, a protection for the church and the hope of extension of love to this one who is in sin, hopeful that he will come to recognize that she will appreciate the place to which they've come. 
Would you be impressed with me that this is just a small sampling of the number of passages that give us information and even commandment relative to this? Sometimes, I suppose, in light of the history that you and I have known, sometimes we appreciate that perhaps very infrequently, if at all, are matters touching withdrawal of fellowship carried out. I believe you and I would appreciate rather quickly, as often as God mentions it, He takes it very seriously. Why don't we begin then like this? In Matthew 18, verses 15 and following, there's a description given that if a brother trespasses against you, first you go to him. Hopefully he'll hear you. Hopefully he'll repent. But if he doesn't, take one or two witnesses with you. Hopefully he'll hear you. But if he doesn't, you bring it before the church. Hopefully He'll hear you. But if He doesn't, you let Him become as a publican and a heathen. You withdraw from Him. Notice the hope is extended time and again that this one would recognize what he or she has done. If at all those stages, though, the person is impenitent, unwilling to, to repent, let him be as a publican and a heathen. You withdraw from that man that individual. Not only that, look at Romans 16, 17. Near the close of the Roman letter, a description given of, suppose there's a person who behaves, even teaching perhaps, if it were to come to that, matters that were opposed to the doctrine of God, what are you supposed to do to him? Mark him and avoid him. That's strong language. Mark him. You identify who he is, what he's doing, and again, with the hand of opportunity extended, if he won't repent, you avoid him. The strength of these kind of comments only lead us to note Ephesians 5.11. How much fellowship is to be had by a Christian with those who pursue darkness? Those who in fact living in it and by some means are displaying an approval or condoning of it. And Paul says, none have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. My friends, one cannot misunderstand these statements, and we're, we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. Look at the Second Thessalonians 3, verses 6 and 7. In many ways, one of the most direct commandments in all the New Testament, it says, We command you, brethren, to withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Now these who, the, again, walk not according to the Spirit of God, he said they were given commandment. Strong, direct, straightforward, immediate commandment to withdraw yourself from these who would not walk in step with the things of God. May I suggest each of us certainly should reflect often upon that. God loves me so much that He has commanded His Christian family, the blessed church of His Son, they ought to withdraw from me if I do not walk in step with them. The Greek term that's used there perhaps brings to your mind a, a military application. You've seen pictures on television of military men who are walking in step, every one of them's feet hitting the ground at the same time as they march in step. That's the idea behind this word. If a Christian starts to step out of step, his brothers and his sisters should love him so much that they will withdraw themselves from him if he won't repent. 
with the hope that this might be the one last thing that would jar his senses and move him to recognize that to which he has come and that to which he's going. Maybe it's in light of that. You'll notice in 1 Timothy 6 verse 5, in the last chapter of that book, Paul in writing to Timothy admonished, even commanded him that there's to be withdrawal from those who follow corruptness and who follow those attributes and attitudes of life that are apart from the things of truth in God. Withdraw thyself. Let's look even further. As you look at all of those considerations in these verses, there will be some more to come in a moment. But all of it, of course, leads us to ask, we as the body of Christ lovingly look forward to lifting high the banner of every truth that God has given us. It's not our purview to set aside any of it because we're going to be judged by it one day. And when we do, we want Him to be able to say, you've kept everything that I commanded you and you've done so loyally, faithfully and with allegiance. Paul, in fact, preached in Acts chapter 20, I have not shunned to declare the whole counsel of God to you, and I've kept back nothing from you. Perhaps in light of that, then what's the church's responsibility in a situation like this? We've seen the terminology, we've seen the descriptions. What does it mean personally for me? What does it mean personally for you? Well, among other things, let's build on those passages with these explanatory ideas. May I say to you that the church's first responsibility when a member has fallen into sin, when a member has proceeded to walk a pathway leading to his or her eternal ruin, first pray, pray, pray that this person will come to recognize the error of his or her way. Aren't we taught in 1 Timothy 2, pray for all men, Surely that would include someone who's lost. Surely it would include a Christian who's forfeited the blessing of salvation. But may I say, that should be accompanied in verse number 2 of 1 Corinthians 5 with an attitude of mourning. Mourning. Sadness. It should be a heartbreaking thing. When a member has begun to live in sin and to walk in the way that is that person's fact of being lost, it's not a time for smiling. It's not a time for happiness. It's not a time to share conversation as if nothing's wrong. This person is lost. And it's the most important thing on earth to try and reach that person so that his soul or her soul might be saved. It's not a time to pretend nothing's wrong. It's not a time to engage in conversation about trivial chit-chat. The urgency of the moment is keen. That attitude of mourning is expressed in ideas like this. Note again verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 5. That he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. He shouldn't feel at home among us. Let me say it again. He shouldn't feel at home among us, whoever it is that's the subject of this withdrawal. Because He's not one of us anymore. He has chosen to live a life, or she has chosen to live a life of impenitence. And again, as much as it breaks our heart, the person's lost and we cannot ignore it. 
the conduct should be such that he might be taken away from you. Now that doesn't mean that you force him away and treat him like an enemy. We'll study that in just a moment. But it means things cannot be treated as if nothing's wrong. Because notice what's next. Verse number 9 of this chapter specifically commands this. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. This person who, again, living with his stepmother, he's having relations with her. Now please notice, it's not just because of that one sin. Because the next verse says it like this, the next uh, verse uh, or two. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, nor with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. So please notice it's not, it's not just because it was fornication. Any sin would do it as long as you were unwilling to repent of it. Here's a man that's a drunkard, an extortioner, a railer, a reviler, an idolater. It doesn't matter. Any of those will condemn you to hell. But if I'm doing this and others have approached me and I won't repent of it, I won't change, I won't come back to God, I won't stop living that way, I'm the subject of withdrawal. And in so doing, that loving congregation in the expression of their love is told, don't keep company with him or her. Isn't it impressive to notice the strength of the language? The reason it's done? Love. It's the last step, hopefully, to reach this person. And may I interject a point? In the Pippin congregation, or in any congregation, if I were to begin to go amiss, if you witness in me, in my life, that which will condemn my soul to hell, brethren... Come and get me. Don't let me keep living that way. Tell it to my face. If you keep doing that, you're going to hell. Won't you change? Won't you repent? Can I help you? I'll study with you. I'll pray for you. But don't treat me like nothing's wrong. Don't talk about the UT ball game to me. That doesn't matter. Don't talk about the weather to me. It means not a thing. Tell me that I'm lost. And don't ever let me forget it. Hopefully I can be reached before my time on this earth is through and I'll obey the gospel in terms of coming back. That's what it's all about. Now I know you can't make me repent. Even God won't do that. God sent His Son to die for me, but He won't make me repent. But the last thing that a congregation can do is this. You reach me. Try to reach me this way. You withdraw from me. As you and I have developed that even further, notice at the bottom it even included eating. It's not the time to share a meal with me. Birthday party. Go out to a restaurant. It's not, it's not your business to do that with me. You've withdrawn from me. Therefore, that kind of social communication must be no more until that person repents. Notice in 2 John, verses 9-11, through 11, the following statement is made. 
I would invite you to notice see it, a little one-chapter book near the end of the New Testament. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of God of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So this in individual who has lived in a way like this, and again has been unwilling to repent, I can't bid the person Godspeed, pretending as if nothing's wrong. If so, I am a part of the problem. I'm a part of that which is yet not as it ought to be. He says, don't bid him Godspeed. Don't invite him into your house. This person is lost. And as much as it breaks her heart, this is the last step that the church has been given in an effort of love, of desire, of heartbreaking character to reach this one who has acted in a way that means he or she is lost. As you close that slide with me and turn to the next one, you'll notice that the statements back in 1 Corinthians 5 have brought us to conclude the following. Verse 13 closed that chapter with language as strong as this one. This person who had behaved in the way of fornication like this, it says in particular, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Did you notice the description? The Holy Spirit called the, the person wicked. Why? Because he's following that which is opposed to God. That withdrawal is described again with that direct commandment to put away. And isn't it true that we are admonished like this in 2 Thessalonians 3? May we each notice with care what Paul did say. So if I'm not able to share a meal with this person, if I'm not able to, in fact, engage in other social activities with him or her, what may I do? What must I do? May I direct your attention to chapter 3, verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed." Again, the goal is, it's not to insult, it's not to belittle or demean. It is to hopefully cause this person to realize in shame the choices he or she has made. And then verse 15, Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The key thought that should cross your mind and mine with regard to an individual from whom withdrawal has been made is admonishment. As I mentioned earlier, are you ready to repent? Can I study with you? Is it possible that you have come to the realization you know you're lost? Is there something that we can do to yet assist you in your final step of being right with God? The word admonish is the only thing that should be on your lips and mine. Perhaps it is in regard to that. Notice what the result of this is. So when a congregation withdraws from somebody, in a situation like this, it takes us back to the lesson text of 2 Corinthians 2. 
Verse number 6 said, Sufficient to such a man is this punishment. It ought to be a punishment. It is a moment, a period of time in which social contact with this one has been removed, at least by the brothers and sisters in Christ, those of that congregation. And the Holy Spirit called it punishment. And furthermore, it's inflicted by the many. It's a congregational decision. As you and I give thought to where that leads, we know exactly what it says. It's the duty, the obligation of every one of us in light of what we've studied this morning. All these verses and then some more that call upon us to put away that wicked one from us. To admonish him as a brother and not as an enemy. Not to eat, not to have social fellowship, contact. All of that must be removed. Finally, as you and I have noted this morning, the New Testament gives a lengthy list of those particular sins. As you and I have already noted in 1 Corinthians 5.11, it isn't just fornication, it's all of those others that Paul listed. It's any sin of which a person will not repent. Isn't there an admonishment then for our hearts to always be tender and mindful of the truth of God and be ready always to rush to the side of the Master to close that slide, may I again suggest that withdrawal sends the ultimate message of brotherly love. I love you so much that I'm going to do what the Bible says here. It may hurt me. It may not be comfortable and pleasant for me, but God commands it. And isn't it true that in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, notice what happened. You and I might ask, did the withdrawal of fellowship, the way Paul commanded it, was it effective? Did it work? Yes, it did. Note again, though we've read it before in the lesson, it's time to highlight it, it seems to me. Verses 6 and 7 of 2 Corinthians 2. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him. He repented. This man who was living with his stepmother in Corinth, he repented of that. It would appear that that withdrawal of fellowship reached him. He understood the magnificent matter of error he had made. He repented of it and the text says, Now you brothers and sisters in Christ, he's repented, you forgive him. Don't hold that grudge over his head. And today... The people in church, we'd wrap our arms of encouragement and love quickly around anyone who was withdrawn from if he'd repent. Because that's what God commands. And of course, we would lovingly wish to do that. As you and I close that slide, this message today reminding us about what's involved in withdrawal brings us to the close of our lesson. It brings us to a point of consideration of matters like this. The withdrawal of fellowship is a tremendous testimony to the love of God. He loves that person so much. Though the person has made this mistake and won't repent of it, living in this sin, He commands the church to act in effort to bring the one back or to cause that one to realize the error of his way. You and I are urged in the New Testament, as we reflect on that too, let's take that withdrawal seriously here at this congregation in days past. And may we say that even in times of the future, if one of us goes astray, 
May I say to you, it should be a comforting thing to know there's a group of brethren who love me so much. They'll withdraw from me in hopes that I won't be lost. They'll withdraw from me in hopes that I will recognize that error in what I have lost. That's the way God designed His church. As we close this lesson this morning, let's make these final comments and the lesson's yours. In James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Brethren, if any man, and there notice the generality of it, if any man do err from his way, and a brother pursues him and brings him back, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. Withdrawal is all about expressing, you see, this tremendous love of God for the souls of people. Today, if there be one or more in this audience that would wish to make a public obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we'd be honored to assist you. If you never become a Christian, believe in Jesus with all of your heart, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If you've done that and have known what that was like but have turned aside from it, Come back to your first love. Isn't it significant? According to the New Testament, even one from whom withdrawal has taken place, the only thing that person still must do is repent. An individual, if you've walked away from the Lord for any reason, come back to your first love today. We'd be delighted to assist you and help you. And we do that at once while together we stand and sing.